This is God's word. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We read that far from God's word. Today we talk about wisdom and power. It's a continuation of what Paul has been writing in chapter 1. In Corinth, the wise ones, so they were called, were the nobles, the scribes, the debaters, the professors of that day, some of whom he mentioned in chapter 1. Today, we call them cultural leaders, professors, uh, influencers, uh, people who are supposed to give supposed wisdom in order to change how other people think. People want to be seen as thoughtful, knowledgeable, intelligent. Think of it this way. Why do so many people have a phobia of speaking in public? It's not because you lack the ability. Anybody could stand in front of a group of people and put words together. Rather, we're afraid to be mistakenly perceived as being less thoughtful or less articulate than we actually are because of the nerves of the moment. We're scared of being viewed as unintelligent or uninformed. We we all care about wisdom. We all care about power, these two things that Paul is writing about here. Corinth used to rank people according to the standards of worldly wisdom and power. They would ask themselves, who's the greatest? And they would name that person. And then they would say, who's the second? Who's the third? And who's the fourth? And another way to say it is they would, they would say, who's a somebody? And who's a nobody in Corinth? And one way you might remember, because it's the ancient Roman world and Corinth was one of the, the cities in addition to Rome, One way that Corinth showed its ranking was through the ancient Roman gladiator games. The important people buy a ticket and attend the games to spectate. The unimportant people were bought and sold as slaves and forced to participate in the deadly events. The only hope for a slave was to fight and win. And so the ancient Corinth culture, you could say, was ruthless. Like the gladiator, you must achieve to win. You must win to live. And today, you could argue that our culture is just as ruthless. You must achieve. You must win to be considered. We always ask, who's the greatest? Have you not heard the phrase, goat, greatest of all time? We always ask, who's the greatest of all time in music or sports or this activity or that activity? Our culture has moved away from ranking people according to race. Instead, we rank people according to achievement. Wealth, influence, power, wisdom. We're just like Corinth. Does this person have the respect of the community? Does this person perform well enough to merit approval? We're always asking this. This culture today we live in is the same in that way as the ancient Corinth culture. It reveals the culture's definition of wisdom and power. God has a very different view of wisdom and power. And he's presenting that here in chapter 1 and now into chapter 2. God has a very different view of power and wisdom than your neighbor. 
or your coworker, your typical classic American in their mindset, your typical classic ancient Corinthian citizen. And it centers in the cross. To the mindset of the ancient person in Corinth, to the mindset of a modern American person, unbeliever, there's nothing particularly wise, there's nothing particularly powerful about the facts of the cross. The cross itself is not philosophically compelling with the reigning outlook of thought in our country. The world thinks, if they're honest with themselves and honest with you, this is really what they think. If Jesus were truly wise, if Jesus were truly powerful, he would not have ended up on a cross and die there and be buried. He would have had enough wisdom or enough power to circumvent that and prevent it from happening in the first place. Right? Your unbelieving neighbor would say that the cross is preposterous to have as the center of your whole motivation, the center of your whole outlook on reality, the cross is too humiliating for a God that we could claim to respect. And to the secular mind, when he or she looks at the cross, it seems to prove to them that Christ had no power and no wisdom. Look at that. Your symbol proves he has no power or wisdom, they would say. How could it be that God's best plan was to redeem sinful people for himself by giving his own son to die a cruel, bloody, painful death for them. That makes no sense, says the honest, secular mind. A crucified hero? That was God's best move? And your neighbor will maybe come up with this illustration. If a building's on fire, the fireman doesn't go rescue people from a burning building by dying in the inferno himself. It might be a heroic act to attempt to save them, but if he were truly powerful, truly a hero, he would get the people out and get himself out. A crucified hero doesn't make any sense to the ancient Corinth mindset, to the modern American mindset. To the mind of the world, there's no power in being crucified. In fact, to be crucified is the ultimate display of weakness, vulnerability, and frailty. But as I'm saying... God looks at the cross differently. God turns it upside down. What is admittedly to the world, the symbol of weakness and vulnerability, to God is power. For God, it's that Jesus gave up his power that made him powerful. For God the Father, it was when Jesus gave up the power of heaven, submitted to becoming a man, submitted to the death of the cross, that he accomplished the most The key, of course, is the resurrection. The cross is not the end of the story. He rose again. That's power, as the world would admit if they would just look at it. To the mind of the unbeliever, the cross stands alone, and it's ridiculous. Honestly, they look at it as ridiculous. They think you're nuts to be here today. God the Father chose to give his son who willingly gave up all the power of heaven and died for the weak. That is not inspiring to them. And similarly, God calls us to humble ourselves of our ability, our intellect, and to bow to God if we will be wise, if we will be powerful. We have to believe the things that God says that are backwards and reverse from what everybody else says. This is countercultural, 100%, 180 degree difference. 
The most holy people are those who see their sin and run to Christ crucified, and that's their only hope to be forgiven. The most wise people are those who are aware of how little they know because they're aware of the living God. The most powerful people are the people who sacrifice self for the weak. God says that in his kingdom, everything's upside down. What's God's message to the people of Corinth? We're studying it today, these five verses. What's God's message to the people of America? It's here, it's this message. Christ came, died, and rose again to turn power and wisdom upside down. And secondly, the way that God announces that to the world is through the preaching of Christ crucified. That's where power and wisdom are found. Jesus, the powerful one, became the weak one to redefine power. The apostles in their preaching and the subsequent spirit-filled preachers of God's word down through the years from then till now provide truth which we understand the world as it really is. And your neighbors don't understand the world as it really is. The unbelieving mind doesn't get it. They don't understand the world as God defines it. So what is preaching? It's presenting to the world how God defines it, the world, reality, wisdom, power. That makes us think. It makes us evaluate differently the things that we've heard, the things that we see. Look at some famous preachers here in America, men like uh, Jonathan Edwards. His preaching was very intellectual, very. We have it written down. You can read them. It's, it's dense. It's a lot. And some would say he, as a man, were, were sort of dull in delivery. And he seemed to admit that. But it was rich and full of logical content and with a quiet and real passion. So that's one sort of preaching. Then there's George Whitfield and Billy Sunday who drew huge crowds, huge crowds in America to come and hear George Whitfield or Billy Sunday. And they spoke emotionally and with great feeling, got the attention of audiences. And thankfully, the content of the message was faithfully focused on Christ and his cross. We also know of more recent preachers, Dwight Moody, Billy Graham, who are not known to impress audiences with deep and intellectual messages that will unpack certain passages of Scripture, but they presented to sinners the cross and the need to trust in Christ for salvation, for wisdom, and for power. Their goal was clearly that, as evangelist preachers. So we come back to this passage with our question, what is preaching? And why is it so central and necessary for the dying world? And our main point is that our faith is in the power of God through Christ crucified. We'll see Paul's proclaiming, verses 1 and 2, his presence, verses 3 and 4, and his purpose, verse 5. He starts off by writing, when I came to you, brothers. He's going back to the start. He's writing a letter now to Corinth, whom he had planted, and he went away. He's writing a letter back to them, reminding them of when it all started. When I first came to you, brothers, is what he says. Paul started the church. And so what he says is, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech. The word speech is a reference to verbal skills delivering a message to a group. The word wisdom is a reference to mental acumen of the public speaker. Not lofty speech, not superiority of his thought process, not elevated speech, not prominent speech. He didn't come that way. That's the way that speakers in Corinth would come. You got to wow the audience. He says, I didn't wow the audience. I didn't come with all the boxes checked of how speech has to go to be one of the best speakers in Corinth. 
not prominent speech, not the kind of speech that draws attention to the excellence of the speech itself, but the kind of speech that becomes invisible and non-distracting so that the listeners can focus on the content of the speech. Well, isn't that what always Paul would do? No, Paul's desire was to become all things to all people. He goes on to write this over in chapter 9. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So this explains why Paul is writing verse 1. He had preached differently in the previous town. He preached differently in Athens. The town previous, where they started a new church. He had debated with professors. He had debated with scholars. He, he crossed swords with the scholars of the day in Athens. And what Paul's revealing is that method didn't seem to have much of an impact. It seems here in verses 1 and 2 that Paul's revealing he had come to a conclusion. He had come to a decision. He made a resolve not to approach anymore the preaching of God's word with that kind of lofty speech and the way the world does it the way that he did it over in Athens. And so verse 2, he writes ever so clearly, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't know how you get more clear here than verse 2. Why was the lofty speech from verse 1 a form of preaching to be avoided in Corinth? It's not that Paul lacked the ability. He had done it recently and he could do it again. He was eloquent in his speaking and his writing. He had lengthy and extensive personal training in the best schools. They called them the schools of Gamaliel, the great rabbi in Jerusalem. He knew the Greek philosophers well. He loved to discuss big ideas. He could hold his own in the debates in Athens or Corinth or anywhere else. He didn't lack the ability. Paul also knew that Jews demand signs, as he wrote in chapter 1, verse 22. His motive here to change his strategy was not lack of knowledge, not lack of skill. His motive was fulfillment of his grand task. Paul knew what's revealed in Acts 9.15 that Paul was a chosen instrument of God's to carry God's name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Paul's avoiding the lofty speech method because the practices of the world were not how Paul would present to sinners the message of heaven. Paul's drawing the methods for his proclaiming from the same source, he draws the content of his proclaiming from God, methods from God, content from God. How did Paul refer to his content? Verse 1, the testimony of God. You could translate that, the mystery of God. What was previously hidden is now made known, the revelation from God of how sinners are to be saved. Paul's not preaching a, a content. He's not preaching a doctrine, though. He's not preaching and teaching a certain set of things to say. He's preaching a person. Please grasp this. Verse 2, I'll say it again. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. He's preaching a person, not just Christian doctrine about Jesus. He's preaching Jesus. That's what Paul's emphasizing here. He's preaching a person. No other task was part of Paul's appointment by Jesus, not even to baptize. Baptism was done, as he wrote in verse, uh, chapter 1, but it wasn't the essential calling of an apostle. Preaching Christ was Paul's essential calling. Preaching Christ when Jews will have a, a stumbling block over it. Preaching Christ when the Gentiles conclude that that's foolishness. Let's not go listen to Paul anymore, it's silly. 
For this reason, Paul had to go beyond just revealing the historical facts about the crucifixion. Paul had to teach his audiences the meaning of the crucifixion, who it was that was on that cross, and why he was on that cross, and what it means for you as a sinner because of his heart of love and the cleansing that's yours for the taking. It wasn't enough to announce the fact of the arrival of the long-awaited Christ. He had to announce a need for the Redeemer and the arrival of the Redeemer and the accomplishment of the Redeemer's work for us at Calvary and talk about the Redeemer himself. Paul taught and proclaimed the reason for Christ's death on the cross. He stated publicly the eternal benefits from the cross for every believer, that Paul would proclaim forgiveness of sins in Jesus. He would celebrate the truth of eternal life for all believers he would logically proceed to explain the resurrection of the very body of Jesus, followed by the resurrection of the bodies of all who believe in Jesus. That was his preaching. Nothing else. He goes on to talk about his presence in verses 3 and 4. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The phrase plausible words of wisdom here in verse 4, which means persuasive words, seems to be a term that Paul himself coined. Paul seems to have invented this adjective for exclusive use in this verse in all of eternal scripture because it's found nowhere else in all of Greek literature. This word that we translate here, plausible words of wisdom, is what he's talking about. Human persuasion. Some people call it pulpit presence. No matter how good Paul's speaking was, he couldn't persuade sinners to be saved. That takes the Spirit of God. You can't persuade people into heaven by a powerful, well-ordered speech. It takes the Spirit of God. How much authority did the preachers seem to have up there in front of people? Public speaking has three aspects. You probably know this. Logos, the logic, the very content of what is said, the rationality of the reasoning. Secondly, the ethos, the credibility of the speaker, whether or not you think that guy knows what he's talking about up front, the reliability and authority of the speaker himself. And third, the pathos, the passion, the emotion of the speech itself. We can use our imaginations and experience sympathy for the author or the speaker by how he's presenting it. Each of these three modes is part of persuasive speech. Paul's saying he didn't have what it takes to advance the kingdom of God if he had all the right steps and all the right stuff and made the presentation. It can't be done by the human. Paul could not persuade souls to be saved. And he's just being honest here. Weakness. He's admitting weakness even in the task itself. He gives no details, but we can see two directions from his phrase, I was with you, I, you. It's very relational. He's relating to the church in Corinth. I, you, I was with you. How did Paul see the relationship? With them, two directions. He, he felt toward the Corinthians one way and they felt toward him. He's talking about both directions. The word weakness is used to describe both. He felt weak before them. Couldn't do it. No details here. And secondly, Paul was also showing how they viewed him. They saw him as weak. To them, when Paul arrived, Paul seemed weak. Again, no details. The the Corinthians were influential people. 
It was a bigger sort of city, a cosmopolitan area. Paul was sent there to begin a church. What did Paul do for a living? Was he an incredible CEO with an international business and lots of bragging rights? No, 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 no. Paul put stitching into tents in order to hold the tents together. He made tents. It's what we call blue collar. In fact, in those days, it was the job of a servant. Paul was seen as weak. Who's this guy, Paul? But since we're talking in this paragraph about preaching, Paul seemed to see himself as weak and seemed to be received as weak even in his preaching. Why? Because of Paul's presence with them. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Where did he turn for strength? To whom did he go with his fears? When he was trembling, notice it doesn't say he was just trembling a little. Much trembling, he writes. Where would he need to place his trust? I would submit to you something significant is being taught to us here, that in the Christian religion and in the churches of Jesus Christ down through these centuries, having a preacher who shakes his knees and relies on God for every sermon, every message is a good thing. In the church of Jesus Christ, having an overconfident, strong speaker who's poised to have a preacher who doesn't need it, God in every moment, is not such a good thing. Where was Paul's faith grounded? In his own abilities, in his own skills, in himself? No. It's in God. He showed three things here. He's called by Christ to speak for Christ. The spirit of Christ was demonstrated or shown in his speaking. And the power of Christ is demonstrated in his messages. And why brings us to our third point in verse 5, where he writes the purpose. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why did the Corinthians? Never met this guy before. Paul comes in as an itinerant preacher missionary to start a new church there. Why did they place their trust in the gospel message brought by this new preacher? How does that happen? Why don't they just ignore him? Put up the hand and say, whatever. Why did they listen? Why are they converted? Was it because Paul's snazzy and winsome presentation? We pretty much covered that, no. Was it based on the magnetism and personal draw of the human named Paul? No. He thought of himself as weak and they saw him as weak. The only reason that anyone in Corinth was converted and put their trust in this missionary named Paul when he arrived was that in that missionary, in his shaking and trembling person, and in his simple message, simply stated, God was at work. That's it. We need to keep this straight about the church of Jesus Christ in the missionary endeavor and down through the centuries in the church. Paul was God's man. God was in the man. He's in his message. God's spirit is in him. God worked through his speaking. It was the power of God that impacted the listeners. Paul might as well be invisible. It's not about Paul at all. It's about Christ. It's about Christ, the one who was crucified. Remember, it's about Jesus. The Apostle Peter agrees with the Apostle Paul. Listen to 1 Peter 1.4. Peter wrote it to encourage us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for you who, listen, by God's power are being guarded through faith 
1 Peter 1, 4-5. So what have we seen? Our faith is in the power of God through Christ crucified, Paul's proclaiming, Paul's presence, Paul's purpose. And the application is this. Stay focused on Christ crucified. We're in big trouble if we don't stay focused on Christ crucified. It's the core of what Christianity is. It's the core of what every Christian is. It's our lifeblood. We need it. Paul's saying, Paul's a nobody. Paul's saying, Paul's invisible. Paul's saying, every sermon's too much for me. Paul's saying, I step in front of a group of people and I'm always shaking in my boots. Because Paul was humble and he knew what was at stake and he knew the majesty of God and what human can present the majesty of God and his redemption and salvation. Missionary work can't be done without God. Don't you dare send a missionary who doesn't understand that. Vacuuming can't be done without electricity. Don't talk to me about modern battery vac. Don't ruin my illustration. Vacuuming can't be done without electricity, okay? This classic vacuum. But some people, if you unplug their vacuum, could still create a commercial for you and roll around on the floor making it look like they're cleaning the place up but accomplishing nothing. And some missionaries, if you unplug them from daily dependence on God... They'll still move around the mission field, could make a video for you of how much they're doing, and it looks like they're cleaning up the place, but they're doing nothing. Paul's saying, don't you dare trust a missionary named Paul. Don't you dare look at this preacher named Paul. Please, please don't say, well, if Paul says it, it must be true. Please don't say that. You check your Bible against Paul. And it's Paul saying that. Listen for the voice of Christ. Watch for the spirit of Christ. Listen for Christ crucified as you listen to Paul preach. Stay alert for the power of God in your life because of it. If you hear again and again about Christ Jesus and him crucified, that's what you need to remind you of all of the sin and all of the wrong and all the weakness that you always do. There's forgiveness for us in our dark deeds and eternal life and warm welcome from the living God. You know what we all have in common with the ancient people in the city of Corinth? We each deserve to be cast aside from God for eternal death. You know what else we have in common with the believers in the church in Corinth? Because of the Spirit of Christ making us able to receive grace from God and the needed changes in our lives, we have life, we have forgiveness, and we can summon the energy from God to care for or to strengthen or to follow through on the commands that God gives us. Listen past the preacher, says Paul. Listen for he who is being preached. Christ Jesus and his spirit and his word because of his cross. It's all about Jesus. Every sermon, every church, it's all about Jesus. May every preacher in every pulpit, in every mission station, be invisible so that the people can only see Jesus. May every preacher get out of the way so that we needy and hurting people can come running to Christ through preachers. But may that come running past the preacher to Jesus himself. May we all set down roots for our faith in the power of God's Son who was crucified and risen again for us. 
May every worshiper put trust in the risen Lord Jesus. May all our hopes be in him in a crumbling day. If you can't be caught putting your faith in the wisdom of Paul, then you can't be caught putting your faith in the wisdom of any other clergy since. They are weak. Every apostle and every preacher and missionary since, and yours truly. We are weak. And Christ is strong. We are silly, foolish. And Christ is filled with wisdom, and power, and dignity. The best of the preachers work hard to make it easy to understand. But all you hear is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus says to you in your soul, I love you. There's grace for you from heaven. Paul wrote it earlier. Was it Paul, your preacher, who was crucified for you? No. Well, let's stay focused in all the messages on nothing but Christ crucified. Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...